Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. My name is Eric Trexler. I am the special temporary primary host of the show. But for today's episode, I'm going to be joined by a co-host. His name is Greg Knuckles, and he's currently the permanent guest co-host for the time being. Greg, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me on. How's it going? I'm doing well. How are you doing? Can't complain. I did a... It's weird. Yesterday, all day, I kind of felt like I was on vacation. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is a a free kind of life hack for anyone who enjoys traveling, but, you know, maybe you have constraints related to finances or geography or just kind of schedule constraints that make it hard to travel. So what's your deodorant situation? Uh, I I use spray deodorant. Um, I, I don't have really any brand loyalty. Uh, but yeah, too, too, too much hair down there for, for stick to be my go-to. So I, I'm a stick deodorant guy, but I do have brand loyalty big time, mm-hmm. but to a certain extent. So like my, my normal deodorant I wear is like my tried and true brand, but their travel size is like 50 cents more than the cheapest travel size. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not that loyal. Yeah, like yeah. loyalty always has limits and yeah. 50 cents for me is where it, I draw the line. So I always smell differently when I'm traveling, mm-hmm. like markedly differently. Mm-hmm. And the other day I ran out of my normal deodorant and I had to use a travel one that was sitting around. I felt like I was on vacation all day. Oh, nice. It's crazy. Like my brain tricks me into thinking I'm traveling if I just smell a little bit differently. So if if you're at home and you're like, you know what? I'd love a vacation, but I don't know if I can swing it with you know my schedule or the budget. Just use a specific travel deodorant and then every now and then just bring it out. It's like a free vacation. Yeah, makes sense. Um, all right, so let's see. Uh, if you like the show and you want to support it, there are many ways you could do that. Uh, you could like, rate, or subscribe wherever you get the show. Uh, you could join our email newsletter, which is totally free, and we send out really helpful research information once a week. I think on Wednesdays the the research review thing goes out. I think so, yeah. Yeah, so so we give these weekly research updates. I believe they go out on Wednesdays, uh, but the newsletter is a really great free resource. Check it out at strongerbyscience.com slash newsletter. Um, if you're looking for one-on-one virtual coaching, we have a really talented team of coaches at Stronger by Science. You can learn more at strongerbyscience.com slash coaching. Uh, if you want to get an enormous 5% discount off of your already very fairly priced supplements, Go to BulkSupplements.com and use our discount code. It is SBSPOD. That's S-B-S-P-O-D for a 5% discount. And then, of course, if you want to support support the show even more, you could subscribe to the Mass Research Review, which we publish the first of the month, every single month, up-to-date information about the newest research in exercise and nutrition. Or you could check out the Macro Factor Diet app, which we co-developed uh, and there is a free trial for the Macro Factor app, so you can take it for a spin and you can see if you like it. Uh, anything to add? I don't believe so. Awesome. So this is going to be a, a pretty chill, pretty laid back episode. It's going to be a Q&A focused episode. So we got a whole bunch of questions and we're just going to go through and kind of informally address them. It's not going to have the same degree of uh, polish and preparedness that goes into our lengthy predetermined segments this is going to be more free-flowing um and man preparedness is a bit of a stretch but but we're going to say that our our typical segments are highly 
practiced and curated and thoughtfully constructed and this is more free-flowing yeah i i definitely uh practice my segments in the mirror uh or or with my wife live audience to give feedback multiple times before uh <laughs> before debuting them on the podcast and that's so th crazy th this will this will be very different uh than the normal <laughs> episode in, in that regard i was gonna say that's weird though because that one segment when you thought it was gonna be 20 minutes and it took like two hours um, I would have thought that in your preparation, you would have had some trials where it took more than 20 minutes. Yeah, no. So uh, it, actually being being completely <laughs> honest, here's a weird thing about me that not many people know, but now all of our listeners will know. Um, I I can't rehearse things before uh, like before delivering them, like like literally can't. I don't know if this is just like a neurological thing, maybe some sort of like very idiosyncratic speech disorder, but generally I can talk just fine. But if I know on, on like a predetermined basis, uh, exactly the words that need to come out of my mouth, like, like reading a line without, uh, w without like any room for improvisation, I just can't. Yeah. Uh, it's like, um, um, like a, severe stammer that i just can't get over and so i i have i i have to just have a very loose outline and all of the words just like come off the dome or just like actually just read like reading words aloud uh if i if i practice something and i just have in my head the the precise words in order that they need to come out uh they will not exit my mouth i don't think that's weird at all i'm exactly the same way Oh, nice. Um, and like, I've, I've had situations where people close to me, like, know I have a big presentation coming up and they're like, you know what, as a favor, I will volunteer. You, you can just give me the presentation before you do it for real. And I'm like, I'm absolutely not going to do that. And yeah. they say, why? And I say, because I care about myself and I want to do well. Yeah. If, if I plant in my head that there is a very specific sequence of words that should occur, mm -hmm. I spend the entire talk trying to find my way to them and it's ruined. Yeah. Like you, you just got to let it flow. Um, so yeah, there's some free uh, public speaking tips. So so either we're both normal or we're both weird in this the same exact way. Yeah. Either way, I'm good with it. Yeah. Um, but it does save a lot of time because you don't have to rehearse. It certainly does. Yeah. Uh, all right. So let's jump into some questions. Some of these are going to be very, very quick. Some are going to be more kind of longer discussions. I want to start with a couple really quick ones just to kind of knock them out here. Uh, so there was a question from Keith um, and he asked if medical insulin like you would have to treat uh, diabetes might have a performance enhancing effect on strength and or hypertrophy. Um, and so at first I thought the answer to this was was really, really, really obvious but it's as the thread of questions kind of got deeper, uh, the, the, you know, the, the straightforward question is, can insulin help with strength or hypertrophy? Um, supraphysiological doses seem to be helpful for hypertrophy, which then, of course, eventually will have an impact on strength, uh, at least were of that belief. Um, and uh, yeah, so really, really, really high doses of insulin. Uh, I don't, I don't know if they're still common in the IFBB, but I know for a while they, they really kind of fueled kind of a, a new wave of muscularity um, when people just were, it was like all of a sudden all the top level bodybuilders got like 15 pounds heavier and yeah. everyone's like, hey, what happened there? Yeah. Uh, my understanding is that insulin drove 
part of the one of those big steps forward in in the IFBB like untested bodybuilding organ you know where people are just taking everything you know um and so yeah just on the most basic level can insulin help with hypertrophy yes uh but it is very very extremely very much dangerous (laughs) to use (laughs) insulin at these super physiological doses just to get big there are innumerable stories uh of of people who took a little bit too much di- uh, uh, insulin uh, trying to get some extra hypertrophy, you know, I- into their, uh, you know, trying trying to leverage that for extra hypertrophy. And it just, you know, I mean, insulin doses are not to be messed around with, you yeah. know, a little too high, a little too low, kind of a big deal. So uh, it's one of those things that uh, academically I could acknowledge. It, it does seem to be helpful for hypertrophy uh, when taken at these huge doses, but man, I, it just seems like a horrible idea to me, to yeah. be completely honest. Um, but a- as the thread kind of went on, uh, it-, it sounds like the question is more of like, well, no, if if I am taking insulin to treat my diabetes, is that type of dosing going to be helpful for hypertrophy? Um, and I would not expect uh, a similar effect from doses that are intended to basically just restore normal function of insulin binding with its receptor and eliciting the appropriate cellular response. Um, I would not expect this to be kind of a completely linear thing where taking a little bit of, you know, a little dosage for diabetes is pretty good. And then a huge dose is, you know, is, is really hypertrophic, um, you know, because ultimately when you're using diabetes, and of course this is not medical advice at all, but when you're using um, um, insulin to treat diabetes, you're trying to restore function, uh, you know. So, for example, with type two diabetes, you have plenty of insulin around, but you know the, the the sensitivity of the receptors is impacted. So, you have to kind of introduce some additional insulin in order to get the um, the necessary cellular response in terms of insulin binding to its receptor. So, well, when when you're using medical insulin, or, or with type one, like you're just not producing insulin in the first place. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. type one again is. Uh, Type one is just you, you you don't make insulin, yeah. right? So you you need to introduce it exogenously. Type two is when you might say, well, I already have insulin in my body, and now I'm going higher. So this is you know maybe that's where we're going to see some of this hypertrophy. Uh, but again, the only reason the insulin dose is going higher is because you're not having that same level of uh, relationship. That you're not getting that cascade of events where insulin uh, appears in the blood binds to the receptor and initiates that cascade of cellular responses. So the short answer is uh, I wouldn't expect to see any meaningful uh, effect on strength or hypertrophy within that dosing range. Um, Insulin fluctuations within the physiological range don't really seem to impact much at all in Mm -hmm. terms of hypertrophy. Um, And once again, insulin is just too, too serious to be messing around with. Like if you're taking insulin uh, for diabetes, you absolutely should be getting, you should be working with a clinically trained medical professional on that and should not be deviating whatsoever from the instructions that you get there. Uh, and then, yeah, when it comes to the kind of anything goes bodybuilding approach to insulin, I I find that to be just extremely dangerous from, from my limiting limit, limited knowledge of the topic. Yeah. Just two, two little things to add. One, uh, being, potentially somewhat hypocritical but but going with like the dare uh scared straight approach to drugs um 
So I, I don't want to make it sound like I was I was best friends with this person, but I, I knew someone like a, a friend of a friend situation. Um, like I'd met them before, but, you know, I, I wasn't like their best their best buddy or anything. But uh, yeah, untested bodybuilder uh, using exogenous insulin and, uh, you know, use some after a workout uh, as he was just like sitting in the drive through line at McDonald's to get his post-workout meal, which was supposed to include like a large or supersized Coke, like for, you know, the, the sugar that the insulin was going to act on. Um, and the, the fast food worker accidentally gave him diet Coke and he died. Yeah. Um, so like, that's the, 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 that is the sort of thing that can happen when you're, when you're, uh, uh dealing with exogenous insulin in a non-medical, like non-supervised capacity, like of, of all of the drugs untested bodybuilders do, uh, with a, a decent degree of regularity, I think insulin is probably the most dangerous one. Like it's, it's not something to be trifled with. Yeah. And, and like, I all like, I don't hang out with a lot of people who do untested bodybuilding. It's not like, uh, <laughs> not saying I wouldn't, but it's just not my, my yeah, social yeah. circle that I currently maintain. Like I don't have a high level experience where I'm in a gym where like every other person has taken all sorts of stuff. Uh, you know, nothing against it. It's just not the gym in, uh, culture environment that I, that I grew up in. But even I knew someone who nearly died messing mm -hmm. around with insulin. It was actually uh, someone that I worked with and they, uh, they started using insulin and they were like, Oh, they were, I mean, they were really excited about it. Cause they're like, I heard this is going to make me huge. They got really impatient with it because after like three days of using it they weren't huge yet yeah and they started messing around with the dose and yeah one day they just took an enormous dose uh very ill-advised and just hit the deck yeah just, and just like severe hypoglycemia severe hypoglycemia couldn't really move mm -hmm. and uh as he tells the story when he just like collapsed uh there was one of those little plastic uh you know the individually wrapped oatmeal cookie cakes with the cream in the middle yeah yeah um it's like little debbie makes them i think mm -hmm. um he just so happened to be literally within biting distance of one <laughs> of those and he couldn't like use his arms he like gnawed through the wrapper mm -hmm. laying on the floor and got enough sugar out of that thing that uh it helped him pull through yeah but dude that shit scares me. Yeah, it's it's scary stuff. So that 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 was the that was the first thing I wanted to say, just just to add some color to something you'd already said. Um, the second thing is, I think that um, I think that the assumption some people have that uh, using insulin, like like using exogenous insulin for medical purposes, might still have some ergogenic effects. I suspect that that probably comes from thinking in analogies with a comparison to TRT. Because, um, like, this this isn't proven, but there are some, some I think, like, pretty, reason, pretty reasonable, like, bases to assume that, uh, that TRT might have some advantages, uh, even, like, above and beyond just, like, normal testosterone production in just, like, the normal physiological range, um, which is one reason why, like, uh, a lot of sports will give you a TUE, a, a therapeutic use exemption for most drugs that are prescribed to you for legitimate medical purposes. And uh, TRT is like a very legitimate medical purpose to be 
prescribed a drug, in this case, testosterone. But like a, a lot of sporting events will say like, yeah, like we, we don't do TUEs for TRT. And one of the reasons for that, well, two of the reasons for that is like one, um, especially if like what your doctor prescribed to you is a pretty long lasting ester, um, like the the day after, like two, three days after the injection, you might be at like actual super physiological testosterone levels that, you know, then drop off into the normal physiological range and you might wind up near the bottom of the normal physiological range before your next injection. But like you do still spend maybe a little bit of time with super physiological testosterone levels that might be ergogenic. It's hard to say. Uh, and then the other factor is that like, especially if you're competing in bodybuilding or, or even like a lighter weight class in powerlifting where it might be beneficial to cut, get really lean for your weight class, whatever. Um, one of the things we've talked about on the podcast before is just like the hormonal effects of dieting and getting quite lean. And like one of those is just like a pretty, pretty marked reduction in testosterone uh, production. And so if you're on TRT, um, you know, a lot of the other hormonal effects of cutting and getting that lean will still be there, like the drops in leptin, drops in thyroid hormone, etc. But you effectively don't have to worry about test anymore. Like you can get very shredded and still have normal test levels, which people who aren't using exogenous test wouldn't have access to. So like there there are reasons to think that like even very legitimate medical uses of testosterone might still at least at least on the fringes have some net ergogenic effects. Um and so I think people just assume that insulin would be kind of the same way, but I I don't think it would be largely because um like if you're using insulin it it has to be matched to what you're eating. And so you know, again, if we're not talking about using huge doses as a bodybuilder, but just like a type 1 diabetic using insulin to, you know, replace the insulin their body isn't producing for the normal amount of stuff they're eating, um, like it, it is it is still like a scenario where you're 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 matching the input insulin with like what you're actually eating. It, it's not. Like there, there's not the same sort of like decoupling scenario where say with TRT, you can be shredded, but still have like high testosterone levels. Like if you're, if you're a type one diabetic and like you're cutting, uh, where if you weren't a type one diabetic, like insulin production would be low. Cause like you're just not eating as much. It's the same thing. Like you're not eating as much cause you're cutting. And so you just want to be using as much insulin. So like, it's, it's a, it's a more like tightly coupled thing of like your body's overall physiological state to the hormone you're injecting. Whereas you can have like a bit of decoupling with, with uh, TRT treatment. Yeah. There's one other thing to address here, uh, which is uh, in that thread, somebody pointed out the fact that, uh, you know, uh, there are a lot of very, very, very strong people who happen to have type two diabetes uh, who, who uh, use insulin medically and they were wondering if perhaps there's some kind of observational correlation there. And I would speculate uh, that that is a correlation that does not follow a causal chain where you would say, oh, because I developed diabetes and got access to exogenous insulin, now I'm much stronger. I think usually people who are just interested in being really effing big and strong and aren't really worried about staying lean it's not unusual to expect that a lot of people who are, who are pushing and like, let's say that your goal is to be 
just an absolutely incredible record-setting super heavyweight strength strength athlete. Mm-hmm. That might be a road that leads to uh, pre-diabetes or even a diabetes diagnosis. Um, but but the fact that there's insulin in the mix after that is is a correlation that is not going to have a causative factor in terms of you becoming really effing big and strong. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all right. Uh, another question here from Michael. This one's going to be really short just because we've covered it a lot. And sometimes I'm of two minds about this where it's like, if we've covered it a lot, do I want to make the the audience suffer through it again? Um, but I also think that it, it is important to have some repetition in content just because not every person is going to listen to every moment of this podcast or, or check, you know, catch every article that we write. Uh, so the question was, why is a maintenance phase important after bulking or cutting? And physiologically, I don't believe it is. Uh, and we, we've kind of talked through the logic on that uh, many times before in many different, uh, you know, pieces of content, written, audio, etc. I don't think that there is a physiological need or even a physiological benefit of, of saying I have to commit to a maintenance phase after a bulking phase or a cutting phase. For example, if you're someone who's just kind of taking that incremental approach where you're going to bulk until you're, you know, until you say, I'd like to be a little leaner, you know, for, you know, maybe there's a health biomarker that you're keeping your eye on, or maybe it's just, you know, "Eh, I don't really like how I look beyond a particular, you know, level of adiposity. If you're doing the the repeated bulking and cutting uh, cycles and hoping to just continue getting more muscular over time, uh, I don't see any reason why you'd have to go bulk to maintenance to cut to bulk to maintenance to cut. You can just bulk, cut a little bit, bulk, cut a little bit. Uh, I, I don't see any physiological downside to that. If there is any value to um, uh, you know, introducing these maintenance phases, it is uh, purely due to preference and practicality. You know, and one of the things, you know, of course, if you just want to maintain for a while without making your next really focused push, that that's a very viable reason to just say I'm going to maintain for a while and just kind of get comfortable at this weight. Um, another thing, logistically, sometimes a maintenance phase makes it easy to assess some of the early changes in scale weight. Where uh, you know if you're bulking really hard and just absolutely eating like crazy, and then you go straight into a really aggressive cut, you're going to convince yourself that you lost like eight pounds of muscle in the yeah. first couple of weeks. And sometimes it is easier. Uh, to deal with the numbers uh, in a more sensible way. If you say, I'm, I'm going to take like a two or three week break there where I just kind of maintain, I'm not eating pounds and pounds and pounds and pounds of food every day. I kind of level off body weight and then I ease into my cut from there. So there are some reasons why one might, might want to do it, uh, but they are not, uh, it, there, there's no physiological advantage that I, I see a lot of evidence for. No, yeah, I I agree with all of that. All right, now let's get into the fun stuff. This is a question we've answered before in different iterations, but it's a question that's easy to come back to because uh, I feel like every time I answer this, I'm in a slightly different state of mind. I'm in a slightly different place in my fitness journey. Uh, you know, you can never be in the same river twice is what they say. You know, mm-hmm. things are always changing. So sometimes it's, it's nice to revisit this with just a little bit of different context. Uh, so... Michael asks, what are your most controversial fitness opinions that would rile up the evidence-based fitness community? Um, And I think when I look at my answers, I think controversial is probably overstating it a little bit, but I don't know. I've I've never been one with with content to really take huge swings. I I try to just say, oh, let's 
try to be as compatible as possible with the evidence. And when, when there's room for some, uh, some ad libbing, because there's a gap in the literature, you fill it with, you know, some of those more, uh, anecdotal pieces of evidence. So, um, one of the things we've mentioned previously is, uh, the old John Meadows tip of doing hamstring curls before your squats. Mm -hmm. And, uh, we, we've talked about it before. I don't know why it's good, but it sure feels nice. I agree. It just does. Um, I was thinking about a couple things that I could say from me. Um, one of them I did a whole segment on recently, which is I think that as time has gone on, the optimal protein range within evidence-based fitness is approached way too rigidly and way too dogmatically. Like we, we've talked about how common it is for people to really balk if you recommend that someone eats 1.4 grams per kilogram of protein. And in any other nutritional niche, that is categorically viewed as a high protein intake. Mm -hmm. uh, in evidence-based fitness, it's viewed as like barely enough to survive for some reason. Yeah. And when you get back to the actual source material from which we de we derive that kind of broadly accepted optimal range, the level of precision is not what it's made out to be uh, in this evidence-based fitness community. So my uh unwillingness to rigidly identify that exact same protein range I, I think is uh bucks the norm a little bit uh another one that came to mind is mindful eating for weight loss purposes um now mindful eating is not for weight loss and i want to be really clear about that it's not something that is uh it's not something that i misunderstand that's not lost on me the purpose of mindful eating is not to lose weight um, but there still is evidence looking at do people happen to lose weight when they utilize mindful eating strategies. That evidence is mixed. Uh, there are some studies indicating, yeah, there's maybe a, a very slight passive reduction in body weight. Other studies saying, yeah, it didn't do anything at all. People continue eating the way they normally eat. Um, I have found personally that when I do more very intentional mindful eating, my energy intake tends to passively go down. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think part of that is just kind of mentally reframing the meal. I think part of that is uh, strategically taking emotional elements out of the eating process. And I think part of it's just eating more slowly because uh, it, it's really hard to scarf down a meal and do mindful eating. They're, they're pretty mutually exclusive. Yeah. Uh, so I, 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 for me, mindful eating has had an outsized impact on passive weight loss when I compare it to what I would expect from the literature. Um, another area where I've seen that is using sauna for appetite management. And this is not a recommendation because like with sauna, you don't want to just lock yourself in there recklessly. Like sauna is something that should be approached uh, w with a high degree of caution uh, and, and with a really good plan in place because heat exposure you know, humans are subject to hyperthermia. It's one of one of the things that can get us. Yes. You know, so you got to be careful about that. But I started doing sauna just because I like it. It makes mm -hmm. me feel good. And uh, what I, I, you and I have talked about this off air, maybe on air as well. I'm not certain. But I noticed that like I would have an acute suppression of appetite after I was in the sauna, but I would not experience uh, a kind of rebound later in the day like it's not like my appetite would plummet for three hours and then i would just do a bunch of ketchup eating 
you know, six hours later where the, you know, the, the appetite comes back and then some. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what I found was kind of when I do a lot of sauna, I have this acute reduction of appetite that maybe lasts a couple hours, but then it just goes back to normal rather than having some kind of compensatory increase above baseline. Uh, I've seen some, I don't even want to use the word evidence. I have seen people hinting at such effects in the literature, but very in a very tangential manner and not with a lot of really strong experimental evidence supporting it. Yeah. Uh, so I've seen whispers. Uh, the, the, the place I've seen this is people talking. There's a great review paper looking at different elements of appetite regulation in response to various physiological stressors. Uh, and, you know, they were talking about how does exercise impact appetite? How does sauna? How does uh, cold exposure? Uh, and actually, I don't even know if they talked about sauna. I just know they talked about core temperature. Mm-hmm. And, and they, they speculated that some of the acute appetite suppression from exercise is due to an elevation of heat production uh, and core temperature. Uh, so... Is there something there? I don't know, but it, it's certainly not a claim that I would make and say, "Hey, here's a very evidence-based statement." But for me, kind of, kind of does some stuff. Uh, and then one thing that I think would be kind of controversial if I ever bothered to lay it out as a hot take mm-hmm. and like really quantify it is that I can look at the meta-analyses and say, "Okay, you know." Here's where volume appears to start becoming superfluous, you know, either across a week or within a session. You know, here's the set volume that looks reasonable. Here's the frequency that looks reasonable. I get all that. But the periods of my life where I've experienced the most short-term muscle growth is when I do specifically the push-pull legs kind of split. Mm -hmm. And I just throw all the junk volume in there. And, mm-hmm. and like I'm doing these sets and I say, I know I've seen the meta analysis. This is supposed to be unproductive junk volume. But every time I do this shit, I grow like a pretty it's like a pretty pronounced thing for me. So like whatever, I, I'm not trying to like make it a generalizable statement. But man, when I do push pull legs and just say, I'm going to lock myself in the gym for 90 minutes and just do sets. Yeah. I fucking grow a lot, dude. Yeah. Like it it's kind of a thing that I've noticed too many times in my lifting career to ignore it. You know, so I, I think I'm definitely one of those people who for me the optimal weekly volume is much higher than the kind of bare minimum of the range that you'll see in the meta analyses. Yeah. Uh and that's all I got. No, yeah. I mean that that all that all checks out. Especially what you mentioned about the sauna. Like I, I don't um I don't regularly sauna bathe. But I, I've also noticed that uh, when, when I'm just overheated in general, like if I think I notice this the most when I have a lot of just like outdoor work I need to do in the summer, um, I I just have no desire to eat and really no appetite until I until I get cooled off again, uh, and and then it it is like very similar to what you're describing, like I feel appropriately hung, hungry, but it's it's not like when I get cold. When I get cold, uh, like that also acutely suppresses appetite. But then once I warm up, I just want to eat everything in sight. No, um, the uh, I don't know if you ever looked at that paper because I know I linked it in a previous show. 
that that yeah, experience yeah. is fully supported by the evidence. There is significant rebounding of appetite after cold exposure. Yeah, but with with heat exposure, like my my experience is is very similar to yours. Yeah. Um. So my three things that I think might cause some controversy. Uh, the first is just kind of like a pedantic point, I guess. Uh, but whatever, that's that's fully within my wheelhouse. <laughs> um, I very frequently see the claim made that uh, it, it from evidence-based fitness professionals that BCAAs, branched-chain amino acids, are completely worthless as a supplement. All you're doing is wasting your money. Uh, they have, you know, no utility whatsoever. And the thing is, like, that's just fully contradicted by the research. Uh, so the, the extent to which that is potentially true is that, um, all of the things that BCAAs are supposed to do for you, protein itself does for you. So if you're consuming adequate levels of protein, uh, in an, in especially you have some protein in your system in or around a workout, um, yeah, like you're probably not going to get much from BCAAs. Although that's still kind of an open question because um, there just like aren't studies directly comparing protein and BCAAs looking at kind of acute effects, uh, which which does interest me. Like I'm I'm surprised that those studies haven't been done. But at this point, there are like three or four meta analyses that have been published comparing BCAAs versus placebos um, looking at kind of like acute recovery stuff. So recovery of muscle performance, uh, markers of muscle damage, like soreness, uh, like inflammation markers. And I mean, compared to placebos, BCAAs do seem to have positive effects. And so, you know, the the claim itself, complete waste of money does nothing, is just categorically false. And then the more practical claim of like, well you know, why don't you just do protein instead? Um, like, I think that that's fair in most contexts. Like if, if you're say working out after work, after school, whatever, um, you've already eaten breakfast and lunch, you're going to eat dinner later then like, yeah, like I, I would be very surprised if you did benefit from consuming BCAAs during or around your workout. But if you're someone who say trains first thing in the morning and, uh, you know, like, Speaking for myself, I don't want to drink a protein shake immediately before or during a workout. And I also just don't like protein shakes. I think they're nasty. Um, and like some BCAAs like actually taste kind of nice. And so if you train in the morning and like you just don't want to chug a protein shake in or around your workout and maybe you're doing intermittent fasting, you're not going to eat until lunch. Like I think in that scenario, um, you you should you should very reasonably expect positive effects of BCAAs. So yeah, like I, I think that I, I think that they are absolutely oversold in like the marketing material attached to them. Um but I, I also think that pendulum has swung too far back the other side where people just say, oh they they do nothing, complete waste of money in all contexts. And like that's just not true. Yeah. I, I you mentioned the the um the special case of training in the morning. Mm -hmm. uh, lately, I've been waking up very early and just like rolling out of bed and going straight to the gym. Mm -hmm. And so, like, I'm I'm drinking my morning coffee while I'm working out and just kind of using it as as a way to like wake up. Because mm -hmm. uh, I've I've noticed that it's just for my daily schedule, it's so much so much better 
I more reliably get my workouts and have enough time for them if I just do it first thing. Like yeah. just nothing else comes up. Uh, but man, people at my gym, when they see me, I, I kind of like permanently look like that. Have you ever seen that meme with uh, with Ben Affleck when he oh, just yeah. looks like he's reached a level of tired that is hard to put into words, you know, just spiritually tired. Is it? Is it the one where he's holding the cigarette? Yeah. If he's not holding a cigarette, he's spiritually holding a cigarette. I think he is holding a cigarette, and he just looks like he's dead inside and as tired as a person could be. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's pretty much how I look when I'm when I'm working out these days. Uh, yeah. But it, it, it's a great... You got it pulled up? Can you uh, angle it at me there? Is this the one? Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah he's just... He's, he's he's really going through he's it. He's really going through it. He and I both. I'm just over there leaning on the uh the belt squat machine with my coffee like god, I can't believe I'm here. Yeah. Uh but anyway, yeah, so go on. Uh so number 2 is I I think that uh people in the evidence-based fitness community might oversell the the difficulty of training to failure, at least as far as like recovery burdens go. So um, there, there's plenty of research you could cite that just takes an acute design where you have one group trained to failure, one group not trained to failure, and then look to see recovery afterwards uh, or like a crossover design where, you know, a group of subjects trains to failure or not, you know, washout period four to six weeks and then they kind of flip-flop and, again, just look to see acute recovery responses, uh, creatine kinase, creatinine, soreness levels, uh, recovery of contractile force, etc. And it is, it is very much true that in those studies, you tend to see a longer time course of recovery when people train to failure. But then I think people uh, over-extrapolate from that considerably, and they say, like, oh, if you... Uh, train a single muscle to failure every week uh, or every time you train that muscle, um, there's no way you're going to be able to recover from it. You're just going to accumulate like a huge fatigue debt and basically just fucking die. And the thing is like one, that is like, you can't draw that inference from the studies that have been done uh, because they don't include like inadequate habituation phase. And that's important because like, if you look at, if you look at just about any training intervention that is like more intense or challenging than what the subjects are accustomed to, and this is like especially true if it's a study on untrained subjects, um, I mean, you might see a time course of recovery that's like three, four, five days up to a week, maybe even longer for like particularly uh, cruel eccentric training protocols. But then I mean, people listening to this who lift weights, I'm sure you remember the first time you lifted weights, you were just absolutely murdered for, for a week, maybe even longer. And then guess what? Now you do the same workout again, and it, it doesn't affect you as much. Um, and there, there's every reason to suspect that they that, that same sort of habituation uh, and, and that application of the repeated bout effect would apply to training to failure as well. Um and so, like, one, yeah, the, uh, an acute study that only involves, like, a single bout of training to failure and looking at the recovery time course after that bout, I don't think we should necessarily assume that that will always be the recovery time course for someone who consistently trains to failure. 
The other thing to note is just that, like, on on a more meta level, if you if you read a lot of research, like a lot of longitudinal resistance training studies, I would say I would say most, if not most, somewhere around half of the training protocols used in the research are just yeah, you're going to do like six sets to failure on a particular muscle group two or three times a week. Like that's, that is the go-to training prescription um, where, you know, you might start with like 70, 75% of one RM, uh, one or two exercises, you're doing three to five sets to failure, and uh, the rep range they're going for is eight to 12. And once you can complete 12 reps on all of the sets, weight goes up the next week. But it's just training to failure like every session, every week for like 10 to 12 weeks. And guess what? People get bigger. They get stronger. They don't all overtrain and fucking die and get injured. Um, so like, yeah, it, it, like I, I, I don't want to um, imply that the opposite is true and that um, training to failure doesn't ever come with an increased recovery burden and you know even once you fully habituate to it it may still have a greater recovery burden than non-failure training but i i think people just just blow that way out of proportion and, and make it seem like much much scarier and harder to recover from than it really is yeah no you definitely hear from people who are like listen there's no way that you could do a set of bicep curls to failure on wednesday and do another one to failure on Saturday. Yeah. Like it's it's not within the range of human possibilities. And uh, it actually is. It certainly is. Uh, and, and then the third thing, this is kind of half-baked. I might do a full segment on this at some point. But it's it's something that I've been kind of stewing on for a while. And it relates to mechanisms of hypertrophy. Um, so I think that I think that a good chunk of evidence-based fitness folks have fallen into what I would call a, a trap of tension reductionism. So just for some background on this, um, man, a long time ago at this point, maybe like 2010, uh, Brad Schoenfeld published a paper um, laying out what appeared to be at the time the main mechanisms of muscle hypertrophy. And uh, what he came up with was mechanical tension, metabolic stress, and muscle damage. And then in the subsequent years... It started looking uh, much more like uh, it, it, it doesn't seem like metabolic stress is uh, as important as we previously believed it to be. Maybe not really important at all. Um, muscle damage also like the, the case for it um, seemed to weaken over time. And so uh, effectively of those three, we were left with mechanical tension being the one that had the most support and a, a growing amount of support. And then, uh, so a few years after the Schoenfeld paper, there was uh, a paper by uh, Henning Wackerhage and colleagues. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, but whatever. Uh, th the title was something along the lines of like, uh, it, it was like uh, initiators of muscle hypertrophy, something like that. Like uh, initiators the, the, and mechanisms of muscle hypertrophy. Yeah, it's like a collaborative project where they basically revisited yeah. like Schoenfeld's 2010 project and almost kind of like provided an update. Yeah, you know? yeah. And so the, the basic takeaway from that paper was that like, yeah, uh, mechanical tension does seem to be the the primary initiator of the cellular processes that kick off the process of muscle hypertrophy. Um, but I think people have taken that to 
a, a bit of an unjustifiable extreme to the point of assuming that tension is the only thing that matters. Uh, and not only is it the only thing that matters, um, also just like a tacit assumption that there is a direct linear relationship between the amount of tension that your muscle fibers are exposed to and the amount of muscle hypertrophy that will be experienced. Um, and then also like, uh, like taking it to the extreme of uh, essentially saying like, Hey, if we do a thought experiment, um, like any sort of training modification that will increase tension will necessarily increase hypertrophy. And if a study is published where it doesn't seem like the intervention would have affected mechanical tension, but you still see a difference in muscle hypertrophy, that must be a completely spurious finding because there's nothing else that could be contributing other than tension. Um, and so, yeah, like I, I think that I think a lot of that has been has been taken to a, a pretty a pretty unjustifiable extreme by some folks. Um, and, and just like a few things to note about it is one, um, like there are there are assumptions that seem to be like baked in to a lot of that that I don't think there's data to support. So so like for example, um, it, it's kind of assumed that if you take a set to failure, uh, all of your fibers at some point during that set would have been exposed to the maximum tension that those fibers would be capable of being exposed to. Um, and like, there's one, there's, there's not good data to directly support that. Like you, you would need, like, it's, it's very hard to study fibers in vivo. Like most of, most of like the very direct fiber research, like you have to do uh, a biopsy and separate out the fibers and like hook them up to very, uh, very like nuanced equipment to actually like study that stuff. Um, like it's, it's hard to even pick out like activation of individual fibers. Like you can use high density EMG to get at that, but um, that that's not going to be able to perfectly decompose activation rate coding, like all of that stuff. And so like, yeah, like it, it, we, we don't have direct evidence for that. And there's also like theoretical, uh, so, some theoretical models suggesting that like, that's probably not the case. So there was, um, a, a great paper by Potvin and colleagues, uh, that is linked in my article on stronger by science about effective reps, if you want to check that out. But yeah, like it, it seems like other than just like maximum, like, like completely maximum isometric contractions a lot of your motor units probably don't actually reach peak tension in the first place but they still seem to grow just fine so yeah like to be clear mechanical tension is very important and i think of all of the things that can contribute to hypertrophy based on what we know it is probably the most important factor but i i think that there's um some willingness to take that to a a very unjustifiable extreme to say not it is the most important factor but in fact it is the only factor uh then also with like a secondary assumption that there's just like a purely linear dose response relationship between the tension the fiber is exposed to and how much hypertrophy it experiences like yeah a, a lot of that like we we just don't have data to support yet um so yeah I I, I, yeah. I think that that would probably uh, get me in hot water with some folks. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the kind of prevailing theme here um, 
for, for many of these things is that there is kind of a natural tendency to want or to gravitate toward uh, kind of oversimplified understandings of some of these topics and to place a really high degree of confidence in those simplified narratives. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so for like branched chain amino acids, categorically useless, and I'm very confident in it, right? That's kind of like a common thing that you see. Uh, optimal protein range, 1.6 to 2.2. And we know this with certainty to, due to the advancements of uh, science and mathematics. Like mm -hmm. a lot of times it's just like we, we lose that layer of nuance that that is probably pretty important to retain. Yeah. Uh, all right. So uh, before we move on to our next question, I think we should probably take a moment to sell out. Uh, it's a very important part of the show. So we're going to take a quick timeout for an obscene profit break. As the first and only fitness podcast with a steadfast commitment to traditional family values, we know that protecting families is important. Right you are, Eric. But I will note, there are some things that are even more important than protecting traditional family values and the moral fabric of our society. That's right, Greg. It's important to protect families, but it's even more important to protect corporate entities. That's why I joined the advisory board for the Sports Nutrition Association, along with trusted fitness pros like Danny Lennon and distrusted arch nemeses like Eric Helms. The Sports Nutrition Association is the home of sports nutrition. They are dedicated to ensuring the sustainable prosperity of the sports nutrition profession, and they offer a unique pathway to robust insurance coverage for your sports nutrition business. Simply put, it's the best way to protect the corporate entities that are closest to your heart. And I should note, if you're an individual sole proprietor uh, providing sports nutrition services, and not a corporate entity, the Sports Nutrition Association can help you out as well. That is correct. All insurance plans are handled individually on a case-by-case -case basis, regardless of how your sports nutrition business is structured. But even if you don't want insurance coverage, SNA membership comes with a bunch of other perks and advantages. The Sports Nutrition Association is the only global professional sports body that has a defined standard for sports nutrition scope of practice for its members. This ensures that members maintain high standards in their practice so that the public can always trust in the quality associated with the services of an accredited sports nutritionist through the Sports Nutrition Association. If you already meet their minimum education requirements, you can become an accredited sports nutritionist today. Uh, if you don't meet those education requirements yet, you can enroll in the certificate program in Applied Sports Nutrition. That allows you to become a provisionally accredited member upon completion. To learn more about the Sports Nutrition Association, head over to www.sportsnutritionassociation.com today. Today's episode is sponsored by the Sports Nutrition Association and Stronger by Science LLC sincerely appreciates their support. All right, so... Uh, back to the questions and hopefully some answers. Uh, I've got one question here I'm going to uh, address very, very quickly. It was from George, and then there was some additional commentary from Jason. Uh, but but basically the question was, uh, you know, I'm not preparing for a bodybuilding show or anything like that. I'm kind of a casual lifter, just kind of really into fitness. I'm doing a cut. And the, the question is, uh, how important is it to maintain most of your muscle on a cut? Um, 
And and basically th- their perspective, uh, kind of oversimplifying a bit, is whatever, I'll just cut. And if I happen to lose some muscle, you know, muscle memory, et cetera, I'll just make it back the next time that I do uh, some kind of a bulking attempt. Um, and ultimately, you know, as I was reading this question, I mean, t- t- as far as I'm concerned, this is a 100% subjective thing. Uh, how important is it? Uh, it, it that, that's a question that I would send right back to you. Uh, it, it really comes down to your preferences, your priorities. So how important is muscle retention in a non-clinical scenario? It just depends on how much muscle you want to have at any given point in time. So um, I don't think that there's actually an objective, like scientific answer to this. I think in the interest of being efficient with your efforts, it's probably not a bad idea to do at least the bare minimum to, to try to maintain muscle if you can during a cut. So you don't want to go outrageously huge with your deficit. You don't want to go outrageously low with your protein. And you want to make sure that you're doing some resistance training, even if you're cutting your volume and your overall effort in the gym by by a sizable amount, you still want to do something to try to maintain that. Now, how much effort you put into optimization, again, that's where we start getting into simply a matter of preference and priority. Uh, but I will note this, um, anecdotally, in my experience, people who lift seem to have a tendency to overestimate the amount of muscle that they lose while cutting. Um, I, I think there's a couple things that go into that. And to be clear, I'm not judging because this has 100% been me. I have been in this position where I've very much overestimated my muscle loss on a cut. I think a couple things feed into that. First of all, we do have a tendency to underestimate how much fat mass we have prior to weight loss. Uh, I mean, this is like a, it's so cliche in the bodybuilding world. Talk to a first time competitor and say, how, how much weight do you think you're going to have to lose to be stage ready? If they say 20 pounds, it's 40. Mm-hmm. If they say 30, it's 50. Like mm-hmm. there, w- when I did my first show, I was like, man, if I get down to like 165, I might die, but I'll be shredded. Mm-hmm. And when I got to 155, I was like, I'm not even close. Like I'm not even close to ready. So that's one thing that goes into it is there is this tendency to to underestimate fat mass before a cut. Um, another part is just good old fashioned catastrophizing, <laughs> which I've, I've definitely been guilty of. But, you know, you start to see the scale weight go down and you're someone who's been really into getting big for many years. And you say, "Uh oh, that looks kind of bad. Like I, I always thought of myself as being someone who weighs 200 pounds. So why does the scale say 170? You know, you, you start to get some of these ideas in your head where you're like, man, I'm I'm just absolutely wasting away the shirts where you used to look huge. You start to look less huge in them, you know. So I think those two things really predispose a lot of lifters, myself included, to kind of overestimate our muscle loss during a cut. And in many cases, uh, you know, when you lose weight, a considerable amount of weight and you're a lifter, you know, you, you, you're probably going to lose some fat-free mass in the process. To what extent is it muscle? Eh, it kind of depends. But um, but yeah, I, I do think we have a broadly a tendency to overestimate that. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I don't have anything to add. <laughs> All right. Well, here's a question that I think you will have plenty to add uh, after I take a crack at it. So there's a question from Anthony. And the question is all about NSAIDs, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. The question reads, is there a proper way of training and using NSAIDs when in need? 
I've heard that for older individuals, they can be beneficial. Um, but how does application change when you're a younger individual who is in momentary need of NSAIDs for sickness or some other kind of minor health issue? Um, so the, the person in this scenario, I, I, I guess, is um, experiencing a high degree of systemic inflammation and therefore is, is leaning on these. Uh, to answer this, uh, I lean on two sources here. One is kind of leaning on the general principles of the antioxidants article that I did a couple years back, strongerbyscience.com slash antioxidants. So leaning on some of the, the principles and the kind of philosophical underpinnings of that literature, and then cross-referencing with a recent paper by uh, Gurdjieff, which was uh, about ibuprofen and uh, muscle hypertrophy. Is that how you say it? When I was growing up, my mother always said ibuprofen, but when I whenever I look at it, it's it's ibuprofen. I've never heard a person say it that way. Uh, my, my mom also said ibuprofen. Uh, I think it's ibuprofen. Yeah, I, but... I just I've never heard anyone actually pronounce it the way it's written. Uh, Lindsay and her family do. Wow, and I I picked that up. Are they them. chemists? Uh, no, they're they're also Ohio people. Wow, there so... are chemists in Ohio, but but yeah, I get I get what you're saying. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> ibuprofen, uh, looking at hypertrophy outcomes. And in Gurdjieff's review, um, there are basically two things that come to mind in terms of key moderating factors. First of all, uh, as the question hinted at, elderly population versus younger population. The other factor was dose. And so to paint with really broad strokes, first of all, there's not a lot of research in this area. There's some, but not a ton. Painting with broad strokes, it looks like I, there, there is some evidence that ibuprofen can actually be helpful for hypertrophy in older individuals, but that it might blunt hypertrophy in younger individuals when it's taken at high doses. And that is extremely reminiscent of the findings in the antioxidant literature, where uh, with antioxidants, really high dose stuff can actually potentiate possibly hypertrophy for older individuals. And there is some pretty overstated evidence that it might have some blunting effect in, in younger individuals. And the reason that age matters there is because as we get older, a lot of times we experience increases in systemic inflammation. That's kind of a hallmark of the aging process. So um, basically, when we, when we kind of lean on some of the antioxidant literature, which is, uh, of course, highly uh, related to this kind of idea of systemic inflammation and oxidative stress, when we lean on the emerging evidence related to ibuprofen, I would say uh, it's you probably don't want to go out of your way to use huge doses of, of NSAIDs on a super regular basis. I think if it's a short-term period where you're using them because you've been medically directed to use them, I wouldn't lose a lot of sleep over that. If there is a blunting effect in the context of you know really substantial inflammation, it's probably pretty minimal. Uh, and and if you're using it, like 1,200 milligrams per day is usually about as high as a, a dose you're going to take with over-the-counter ibuprofen. A lot of these studies, you know, when they're, when they're studying like 400 milligram doses per day, they're not seeing really much of anything. Once they get up to 1,200, then you're starting to see something. But it's also in young people who have no reason to be taking, you know, they, they don't have the systemic inflammation that would indicate 
that they should have been taking that in the first place. So I think the main modifier here is the level of inflammation and the dosage, basically. Yeah, I I agree. And and just in practical terms, um, I I, I think that one, it's worth keeping study design in mind. Like the, I I, I haven't looked back at the study uh, in a while, but if memory serves, the, the young adults taking a high dose of ibuprofen they were taking it after every workout over like six to 12 weeks or something like that. Yeah. And they did still experience hypertrophy, but like using a high dose of ibuprofen after every workout, I think reduced hypertrophy by somewhere between like 50% and two thirds, like somewhere around there. But you know, it, it didn't completely stop it. And that's, that's when using ibuprofen after every workout. And so, you know, if, if you're sick from time to time and you're you're taking NSAIDs to bring down the fever or yeah, you have a headache once a week and you want to you want to pop some ibuprofen to help with that, um, you know, that is different from taking a high dose after every single workout. And so if there is a blunting effect, it would I would strongly assume not be of the same magnitude observed in the research. Um, yeah, if you're taking a lower dose and only occasionally instead of a high dose after every workout, uh, you're probably not going to notice a difference. And if you did, it would, it would be minimal. Um, and then if you are in a position where you do feel like you need to take NSAIDs after every workout, because after every workout, you're not just sore, but like shit, like legit hurts. Um, I, I what I would probably recommend is uh, try to sort that out. Um, like that, that that seems to be a, a greater concern than the fact that you're using NSAIDs. Like the fact that you need to use NSAIDs after every single workout, um, you know, suggests you should maybe talk to a physical therapist and and try to get some of that under control. Yeah, and like you know, if you're taking the NSAIDs because you are just beating the shit out of your body in every single workout. You know, there, there could be a two-pronged approach where you say, okay, I'm going to, you know, really revisit the way I'm training and scale that back and, and do it in, in a more uh, controlled manner in terms of the, the training stimulus. But you could also say, well, do I need to be taking NSAIDs for this? Or like, maybe I scale back the training, I combine it with some, you know, really nice, you know, phytonutrients that reduce, you know, oxidative stress and inflammation. Maybe you say, should I really be taking like eight ibuprofen a day or should I like maybe have some tart cherry extract or cherry juice that I drink uh, as kind of a short term solution to get through really intensive training periods? But like that's something I talk about every time I, I review a supplement in mass that's supposed to help with uh, recovery. Like it is valuable to know what helps for that. But like even when I'm reviewing the tart cherry stuff, I'm like, you shouldn't need this as like a 365 day a week thing to get through your training. Like if you're leaning on it to get through training camp and it's like a two or three week period of time where, where stuff's just crazy, I get it. But yeah, if if you're in a position where you need really, really effective ergogenic aids to help you get just recovered from your day-to-day training sessions, you got to revisit those training sessions. Yeah. All right. Uh, Moving on here, uh, we've got a, a question. Greg, how would you pronounce that name? Wout? Woot? I would assume Voot. Voot. Okay, yeah, Voot. That that looks good. Um, this question, we're getting very practical here. Uh, are dumbbell side raises or lateral raises enough to grow the lateral aspect of the deltoid musculature 
Or do you need to do some kind of shoulder press or upright row to supplement that in order to uh, maximally build that, like I said, that lateral portion of, of the deltoid musculature? Um, I'll say for me, anecdotally, uh, just from being in the trenches, as they say, uh, when I'm putting together my priorities for shoulder muscularity, I'm actually lately not a big overhead press guy. Um, it's one of those things. I, I, I have a policy I do not do accessory exercises that cause even the most minimal amount of discomfort because there's just so many different accessory exercises you can do for hypertrophy. I, I philosophically don't think it makes any sense to, to push yourself through an accessory lift where you're like, why am I doing this if it causes even minor irritation? So uh, I've been, you know, overhead presses for me, I've felt like they are not really getting my deltoids the way I'd like. And they cause a little bit of irritation for me. So I've been kind of moving away from a lot of them. The one exception, if we've talked about it on the show many, I mean, it was probably years ago. I do like a good uh, circus dumbbell press because it does allow me to kind of position my torso so that with each side that I'm pressing, I'm in a really good, comfortable position that minimizes some of that discomfort. But mm -hmm. anyway, for me, the main priorities lately for shoulder growth is doing a bunch of presses at different angles. So doing flat bench press and then incline, you know, low incline, high incline, really high incline, uh, and then doing a, a lot of rows at a variety of angles as well. So, you know, kind of like a pretty, pretty straightforward horizontal row, but then also doing lat pull downs that are kind of in that middle ground between a lat pull down and a row. Um, that that's been helping me out a lot with my shoulders. Uh, and then just as kind of the icing on the cake, I, I do a lot of uh, lateral raise variations. And for me, that's been enough. So uh, getting to the, the, the root of the question, uh, you know, do you need to add in shoulder presses or upright row? Currently, I don't use a variation of either of them. And I really don't think I'm missing out uh, from omitting those. Um, and I will say just as a side note, there has been one time in my life where my deltoids just exploded and looked enormous. I was doing Smolov Jr. for the bench press, as I'm sure we all have. I mean, if you were lifting in 2012 and you weren't doing Smolov Jr. for your bench press, I literally don't know what you were doing. I, I didn't. Are you kidding me? You've never done it? No. Oh, my God. Dude, you should do it. I, I did uh, I did Smolov for bench press. Just like the, the, the OG. The, the norm. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. I like the I like the the junior version. It seemed to be a little bit more amenable to the bench press for me. But I did it. I, I was I did it twice because like you're not. They, they tell you not to, but I I did it. Took like one week, and I was like, hell yeah, I'm going back in. And honestly, the returns were diminishing the second time through, but not as much as you'd expect. Yeah, like my bench press exploded. And my deltoids were huge. No, my my death by volume program for bench press was. Uh... Like like back in the day before the Shiko Gold app was out, and and the only uh, details of the Shiko training methodology were just the spreadsheets that were kind of floating around the internet, just like random programs he'd given to like random lifters at some point yeah. over the years. Um, there there was one that was like specifically for a bench specialist that just had just outrageous bench volume. And I, I did that a few times. That was fun. I, w I just remember you, you brought me back to a memory of being such a jackass where I like found that spreadsheet and didn't bother to read up on it or look into it at all. And I was just like, sweet. Uh, now I have all the secrets I need to yeah. be uh, extremely strong. And I didn't realize that it was kind of intended to be split up into two sessions. 
but like I just did what I was told. So I would just like go and squat and then go do some other shit and say, well, I guess I'm going to go back and squat again. Yeah. And like, I never even spend a moment thinking like, why am I doing this? Mm-hmm. Like, why am I going and just doing other stuff and then going back into the same exact squat rack like 20 minutes later? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think I, I think I was talking to somebody like many, many years later and they're like, yeah, it was supposed to be your second session of the day. And I was like, oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I get that now. Yeah. All right. Uh, w- w- do you have anything to to add here with the deltoids? Oh, yeah. So I, I've had a very similar experience. So here's some... Here's some potentially weapons grade bro science, but as as someone who's done a ton of bench press, uh, I have very strong front delts, and you know I I haven't uh, I haven't gone to a lab and like had someone hook up the the EMG to actually like assess my my muscle activation uh, or like relative muscle usage with overhead press, but my subjective feeling is just that my front delts take over like almost exclusively like I'll like after a high rep set of shoulder press I'll have a ridiculous front delt pump and like side delts just just nothing going on um so yeah like I for for my shoulder training I I also uh rely very heavily on on delt raises and rows nice um Okay, uh, I'm going to skip around. Is there any question that you feel very uh, enthusiastic about answering here? I'm going to um, skip around a little bit. Let me see. In the meantime, I'm going to answer one about uh, ashwagandha here. Sure. So Peter asks, ashwagandha for strength and, hy- and hypertrophy, yay or nay? Uh, for strength and hypertrophy, I would say put me down for nay. Um, whenever I hear people talking about this, the discussion almost always leads to one specific paper that I've talked about, I think, on the podcast before, but it reported uh, strength changes that were, one way to put it would be large, another way to put it is just like totally implausible, um, not making any specific allegation, but I would be absolutely stunned if anything close to a replication ever occurred with that study, just the magnitude effect of the effect was astronomical um, to the point of being like, I don't really know what I can even do with this. Mm-hmm. Um, so ashwagandha for strength and hypertrophy, I don't find the evidence to be very compelling. I don't see enough of a mechanistic uh, rationale where I would say, oh yeah, it's going to make you huge and strong. Um, but that doesn't mean that ashwagandha has no uses. Uh, so like, for example, uh, evidence pertaining to like mild anxiety symptoms, like I, please do not try to like self-medicate your way through a psychiatric diagnosis. Like this is not, I'm not, uh, recommending any, anything like that, but like as someone who has had some mild anxiety in the past, there is some research indicating that ashwagandha can help out with that a little bit, but it's not a, a reason to get off your anxiety meds or anything like that. Um, there is some evidence linking it to sleep quality, which which I do find to be uh, plausible and compelling. Um, and then one thing is uh, testosterone. And, you know, I, I kind of have a, my, my, the way I discuss testosterone supplements, I think people might find it to be like they're, like it's a little bit um, contradictory, but it's not there. There's something to it here. So when I talk about testosterone boosters, uh, like supplements, not exogenous TRT, 
When I talk about test boosters in the realm of strength and hypertrophy, I usually talk them talk about them uh, with a very skeptical tone, just because the magnitude of effect uh, should be quite modest, right? So when we look at supplement interventions to boost or support testosterone levels, we're even in the most promising uh, uh, papers you're seeing increases in the range of around 50 nanograms per deciliter. Maybe sometimes you'll see a paper that's like 100. Um, but we're not seeing these. Eno- it's not something that's going to take you from 300 to 950, you know. And so the, the reason that I kind of downplay test boosters when I'm talking about strength and hypertrophy is because people get these ideas about the magnitude of effect where they're like, okay, so TRT and ashwagandha for testosterone, same thing, right? absolutely not the same thing. Magnitudes are completely different. But when I talk about test boosters or test supporting supplements for things like subjective vitality and libido, I actually do think that there's enough room there. Uh, there's, there's a really nice review paper talking about like, where do we draw the line for low test? And what the, the paper gets at is the fact that the way I feel at 350, you might feel that way at 280. Mm-hmm. And someone else might feel that way at, you know, 395. Like there's this kind of threshold where when your testosterone gets below that threshold, which varies from person to person, you start to feel some of these symptoms where your subjective energy level and kind of perceived vitality starts to drop off, your libido starts to drop off. And I actually do believe that certain test supporting supplements or test boosting supplements can be enough to get you from a little below that threshold to a little above that threshold in some context. So um, I wouldn't say, you know, when it comes to ashwagandha's effects, anxiety stuff, sleep stuff, that looks relatively promising to me, uh, especially the anxiety stuff, the sleep stuff, there's not as much research. Uh, Very, very, very modest boosts in testosterone. There's some evidence there, you know, we'll see how well it replicates in the future, but the studies have been done. Uh, But when it comes to a notable increase in like strength and hypertrophy, that's where I start to become very, very skeptical. Yeah, I'm I'm right there with you. This is uh, this is a question I've encountered a few times, and I I think you did uh, a good job of navigating it because like, yeah, there, there is that that one study where if you take it at face value, seems like ashwagandha might be one of the more effective ergogenics for people with strength or hypertrophy goals. But uh, yeah, like, there's there's not like a a direct super plausible mechanism like like there would be for creatine or something right, like yeah. that. Um, so like yeah, uh, it, it's certainly possible that it's really good, but I I would also very very much like to see that study replicated. Yeah. Uh, did you find a, a question that really speaks to you? Um. Yeah, I, I liked uh, I liked Patrick's uh, near the bottom. I also just like Patrick himself. Good shout out Patrick. To, shout out to Patrick Umphrey. Uh, and if you are listening to this and you're a Facebook user and you want to check out a a fitness group on Facebook that's um, you know nice, supportive, and not just like a toxic mess, uh, check out Patrick's group. It's called. Eat, train, progress. I yes. believe. Yeah, that's uh, right. it's it's a it's a great community. And he's check also. It out. I'll, I'm going to double down on this claim. Um, you know, we talked about kind of controversial opinions in fitness. 
there is not a better magician in the evidence-based fitness space than Patrick. Oh, no, no doubt. And I will double down on that claim for the rest of my life. Yeah. Okay. Which one are we going with? Because he has two in here. Um. Yeah, let, let's do both. Let's cool. start with the first one. All right. So Patrick asks, um, you know, he well, he says this may not apply as a as a science communicator or educator, but he's going to ask us anyway. Number one, do you ever look back at your old content and cringe? Uh, and number two, does it make you question whether you're going to look back at your current content in the future and cringe? Uh, and he also has a little caveat there, by the way, not implying anything about our old content. Um, do you want to go first on this one? Yeah, sure. So the, the answer to the first question, do I ever look back on, on old content and cringe is yes, absolutely. Uh, and then second question, does that make you question whether you'll look back on your current content and cringe? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so one of the things that I've become much more comfortable with over time is just the fact that like everyone is wrong about stuff all the time. Um, yeah. and that that's easy to, it, it's easy to look out at other people and identify incorrect beliefs they have or incorrect beliefs that you, that you perceive them to have. Um, but it's, I think almost impossible to reliably do that for yourself because just in general, like if, if you operate on the assumption that, you know, a lot of the things, you know, are wrong, a lot of your perceptions are flawed and just like your mental model of how things work in a lot of specific domains and how you interact in the world, all of that's faulty. You just, you just go insane. Like you, you, you have to go through life with the baseline assumption that you're basically right about basically everything, basically all the time. Uh, and, and that's, that's not a, a novel point I came up with. Um, ah, man, I didn't read the book, but there, there was an article about a book about being wrong for maybe like three or four years ago uh, that, that <laughs> you that, listen to a podcast about an article about a book no, about being wrong no i uh I, I mean so okay here's here's a diversion um i don't really read that many nonfiction books of, of kind of like that genre of like hey we're gonna take a big idea and just like really dig into it for like 200 250 pages i used to read a lot of books like that and I realized that like the book itself is the first paragraph or like the first chapter and then like the last chapter. Yeah. Um, and, you know, like they'll they'll state their thesis and then most like 80 percent of the book is just kind of like meandering anecdotes that are related to the thesis. But most of the time they lay the thesis and like the, the meatiest evidence out for the thesis within the first chapter. So like. Most of it's just a waste, and I find that a lot of the times, if you read like an extended snippet that people use for press purposes, and then just like watch a video from or listen to an interview with the author, you lose nothing by not reading yeah. the book. Yeah, I agree. Um, so yeah, it's, it's that sort of thing. But yeah, so when when I encountered that, I was like, oh shit, like yeah, that's that's absolutely right. Um, like I I would have to be. Uh, I would have to be extremely arrogant to look around and like see all of the incorrect beliefs that I think other people hold and not say like, eh, you know what? I, I'm probably wrong about like a similar proportion of, of the shit that I currently think. Um, 
and yeah, like uh, l looking back on my my own content is a good lens through which to see that because I, I've never published something that I didn't believe to be true and well supported at the time of publication. And then I look back on it and I'm like, oh, yeah, like with with the benefit of hindsight and learning more and knowing more now, um, you know, I think like 80% of this article is good, 20% or 10% just really fucking wrong. I have no idea how I put that to paper in the first <laughs> place. And the other 10%, uh, you know, I, I got wrong for understandable reasons. Like there's better evidence that exists now that just wasn't available to me at the time that I wrote this. But like, yeah, I, I would definitely frame some of this differently. Um, and so like, yeah, I, um, I, I, as time goes on and I, I make content, um, I, I'm much more comfortable when I publish something now, acknowledging and understanding that like a decent chunk of it is probably just wrong. Um, but I, I try to do my, my due diligence to, uh, put as few incorrect ideas into the world as possible. And uh, ultimately, I, I think that's just the best you can do. Um, but yeah, no, like I I, uh, I I hope I'm improving over time, but cer certainly I, I expect that I will also look back on my work that I put out today and cringe. Yeah, I think our experiences with this are similar um but but there are some key differences um because we just took different trajectories with our careers and stuff so i kind of committed to like i'm just going to put my head down and stay in the lab for a while before i put out a lot of like content you know so i, I don't have like a huge library of articles that predated my masters and my phd and stuff like that so um for me when I look back at some of my earliest research projects, I look at them and I say, okay, are they terrible? No, they're not dreadful. They're not fatally flawed. They're not a curse upon the literature that needs to be removed from the literature or anything like that. But I look at them and I say, wow, I would have done a lot better today if I, if I started that project. Um, and, and that kind of, I almost view that as the, the curse of curiosity and the burden that you carry when you're committed to learning new things is like when, when I think about researchers who don't look back at their early work and say like, ah, yeah, I, I would do a lot better today. To me, that's a, in many cases, an indicator you haven't learned a damn thing in like 25 years. Yeah. You know, like, and is that because of uh, there's no incentive to learn new things or is it because it's a little bit of denial and if you learn new things then you have to wrestle with having been wrong in the past and w with academia there's not a lot of wiggle room for that um, you know I, I there, there could be a number of things that go into it but yeah for me I, I don't have a huge library of articles that I wrote in like 2013 or anything like that but when I look back at my early like you know with with me like when I did my PhD, I leaned very hard into, I want to learn more, not about necessarily exercise and nutrition, but I want to learn a lot more about research. I want to dig into methodology, statistics, things like that. And yeah, yeah, the exercise and nutrition stuff is part of the deal, but that's where I really focus my time and effort. And uh, man, that was tough sledding because you, you start kind of digging into deeper and deeper and deeper topics and you're like, it's not just that 
you know, some of my earlier stuff was really superficial and weak. It's that the entire field is being trained to do things that are pretty superficial and weak. And so in order to deviate from that, there's a lot of self-instruction that has to occur. You, you have to like go out and say like, all right, well then what is the way that other fields are doing that doing this that our field has not yet adopted? And then like, man, it's really, really hard to kind of force yourself into that type of like, well, I guess I'll have to try to seek out resources for this and mess it up 30 times before I get it right. And, and my, the prize, the thing you get at the end of the road for that is just looking back and saying, man, look at all those crappy projects I did five years ago. Yeah. Uh, so it's a tough sell. I'm not going to lie, but, uh, but yeah, I, when it gets to even just fitness content, you know, I, I'll still look back at things I did. Um, I, I think, research in the last three years has helped me really make sense of how to frame and contextualize and deal with metabolic adaptation. And I look back at some of the stuff I wrote maybe three or four years ago, and it's, it's all true, but just not framed as effectively as possible. And so it's, it's one of the things I've been trying to work on lately is like, how do we redo some of this framing in light of new evidence you know so yeah. i used to focus so much on does it exist and why mm -hmm. and not as much on to what extent does this get between you and your fitness goals yeah because does it exist yes why because of reasons but is it necessarily a huge barrier actually not really you know mm -hmm. and so trying to unravel that has has been uh an arduous task for sure no i i agree and and i think um I think you, you raise a good point about framing because like w when I look back at old content, the thing that makes me cringe the most is when I make claims that I thought at the time had more support than they did. And, and just as I've learned more about the scientific process itself and like reading and interpreting evidence, um, th things that I used to think were well supported, I look back on like the body of research that I was basing beliefs on before and realize like, oh, th this, w this was quite a bit weaker than I thought it was. And if I was writing this article again, the actual conclusions might not be that different, but um, I, 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 I perceive that I came across as like a way overconfident blowhard. Um, <laughs> and I wouldn't have done that if writing it today. So in, yeah. in terms, in terms of like, framing and how I talk about things um something that I try to be pretty pretty intentional about now is uh being pretty explicit about the type and strength of evidence that I have to support things um and like essentially being able to say like hey uh, here, here are my beliefs about this particular topic and here's what it's based on. Like here, here is the literature at this point in time. And if I'm clicking like publish today, uh, here's the state of the research in November of 2022. This shit could change a lot in the future. Um, so, you know, whatever I'm saying is tentative and provisional, but here's the state of the research today. And then that is supplemented by, um, Here's, here are just like the experiences that I have related to this topic. Um, I'm sure I will gain more experiences and gain more perspective, but you know, as of the date of publication, here, here are the experience, experiences I've had. And then also like here, here are things that I've learned from like 
conversing with other people who I respect, who might have more like hands-on experience with this particular subject than I do. Um, so instead of like essentially rolling that all together and trying to, to do like what are probably more effective for the reader, um, like narrative based articles where it's like very argumentative, like, like an argumentative essay where it's essentially, you know, I, I've already thought through this. I know what my conclusion is. And now I'm trying to build the strongest rhetorical case to support that. Like I, I used to do that a lot more. And I think those articles were, were more effective. Uh, like people yeah. shared them more. They got more reads. Like I, I'm, I'm actively disincentivized to, uh, to present things the way that I do now. But um, yeah, now, now mm. it's, now it's much more so like, yeah, just, just lay out. Here's how I came to these conclusions. And then also like, here are all of the ways that I could be completely wrong. You know, like if, if a study is published that says X, Y, Z, that would, that would poke a big hole in this theory. Um, or just like, I am assuming X to be true, but that's unsupported. And if it turns out Y is true, yeah, th th this whole paragraph's full of shit. Um, and I do that a lot more now. I think that, that that's important um, from just like presenting things in a, in an intellectually honest way. Um, but also, like it's it's bad for readership, <laughs> so yeah, whatever it it is what it is. I was gonna say you struck a nerve with me there because I've been wrestling with concepts in that general vicinity of like what people say they want versus what based on behavior they actually want versus incentives, yeah, for the way you do things and completely different context, but you look at peer-reviewed research about meta-analysis, uh, about how to, I guess, meta-research on meta-analysis, about how to do it effectively. And they say, hey, you got to stop oversimplifying. We need nuance, really thoughtful, careful nuance with your analyses. You know, I mean, the methods page of your meta-analysis should be long. <laughs> that, that, that section should explain a lot of crap that you're sorting through. Uh, and then people in evidence-based fitness, they, whenever you float out a meta-analysis that's overly reductive in its thinking, they say, oh, that's such an oversimplification. These researchers don't know anything about how nuanced this problem is. And then we, we published a meta-analysis uh, earlier this week, which was very, very thoughtful in the analysis and very, very nuanced. And the journal had a, an abstract limit of 250 words. And people were like, well, you didn't even explain all of the analyses and all of the conclusions in extreme detail in 250 words. So, like, what's going on here? And it's like, well, it, the more nuanced you get with the analysis, the more real estate you need to explain it, you know? Yeah. And, and so we were just kind of caught in this position where it's like, you guys promised us that you wanted more nuanced meta-analyses with more more thoughtful effort into the analysis, but now that you've been provided it, it seems like that's not what you actually want because you want something that can be summarized in its entirety in 250 words. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, sometimes you just get caught in that place between incentives, what people say they want. And then, like you said, the actual readership, like what do people respond to well? And there are a lot of times a lot of gaps in there.
Yeah. So now, now I'm, I'm just fully complaining, but one of the things that I've noticed that, that does, that does really bug me is, um, like, yeah, I, I don't think, I don't think the consumer of, I don't think the median consumer of scientific fitness information actually cares that much about science itself. Um, I, I think, I think most of the time, I think most people who are consuming fitness content simply want to be told what to do Yeah, and they want to have a type of evidence supporting those recommendations that, um, comports with their, uh, I think just l largely aesthetic understanding of what good evidence is. And so for some people that is, um, it it's kind of like a a peer to peer thing like like the sort of the sort of guru thing so um they perceive strong evidence to be you know if someone's been coaching for a long time and they're good at like presenting themselves as i am an expert for them like the the mere recommendation to do like whatever thing it is is supported by plenty of evidence because it's coming from a person who they perceive to be the type of person who should be giving advice on that thing for other folks, it's it's just kind of the classic take advice from the biggest guy at the gym or just like the most jacked or strong looking person on social media. For them, like whatever recommendation is given um, is supported by the type of evidence they care about, which is, hey, if it made this person super big or strong, it must be good advice because it worked for them. But I, I think that uh, a lot of folks who consume kind of like sciencey information would look at both of those things and be like, ah, well, there there's holes in that. Um, you know, that that's probably not the best and most reliable way to come about like justifiable true beliefs about the world. Um, but I I want scientific information, and and that's the the process that I think is best for arriving at truth. But then. <sighs> It seems like they don't. It seems like what <laughs> it seems like what they want is the exact same thing. Just someone telling them what to do and then putting a PMID on it yeah. or like a DOI um, and just saying like, so I, I see this all the time, especially on Instagram, but like really just across social media, YouTube, everywhere. If you if two people are talking about a study and one person says, oh, man, like this, tr this training study happened, it compared, you know, this one type of training versus this other type of training. And the first type of training led to 50% larger gains. So you should do that type of training. And here's the citation. Uh, that does really well. People, people want information to be presented like that, stripped of all detail and nuance. And z zero of them are going to check the citation to, to see whether it even supports the point being made or to see if there are any caveats. But then like, if you try to do what I would consider to be a good job of relating that study and say like, Hey, like here was the population. Like this same study was done. It compared like training style a to training style B. Here's the population it was conducted in. Here was the total sample size. This was the duration of the training intervention. Here were the actual like exercises and sets and reps being performed. Here's how they took the measurements and like, here were the results. People don't respond well to that because, <laughs> yeah. because every detail about the study that differs from their life in any way whatsoever 
they view as like grounds to reject the study, treat it as completely useless and not listen to it at, at all. Whereas if it would have just been presented the first way, completely stripped of context, they'd be like, fuck yeah, this is science-based, I'm going to do it. Um, so like, yeah, as as someone who makes content in this area and like tries to be nuanced, it pains me a little bit every time I'm typing up like a, a description of a study where I'm like, well, I should include this detail about the study so the reader or listener better understands what happened in the study. But then I know like if I do, it's going to one, just like reduce the reach of the post and two, just like lead to a shitload of annoying comments. <laughs> yeah, um, you're working harder to do worse. Right. And it's, I, I don't know what to do about any of that, but I, I do find it very frustrating. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah. We'll, we'll have to brainstorm very philosophically what to make of that, but it, it does seem to be a pretty, uh, a pretty common observation. And and like I said, it, it pertains both to like, you know, just putting together an informative post or even just like spreading the word about, you know, published research projects you've done lately uh, is, uh, yeah, there, there's just some of those gaps between what people purport to want, but then what they actually seem to respond to well in very large numbers, yeah. you know, because without question, there, there's plenty of folks who love the really nuanced, detailed stuff. It's just not the large segment of, of the uh, of the readership or population out there on yeah. just on the broader Instagram. Uh, so the other thing, I guess that's a good segue there. Uh, probably the final thing we'll address here is from Patrick. Uh, and this is paraphrased. I forget exactly where I saw this question. I think this is an old one that I've just been sitting on for a while. But it was basically, you know, how do you go about managing your time on social media? And so like, for example, uh, scaling up on total time versus scaling down, being more strategic about certain platforms and how you engage with them. I remember, uh, yeah, now that I think about it, I was paraphrasing this because I think Patrick asked this question at a time when you mentioned that you were kind of scaling social media down. Mm -hmm. But I think recently you started scaling your social media up a little bit. You mentioned that you were kind of dedicated to doing some more kind of informative posts, I think, on Facebook. So why don't, why don't you take this one first uh, and then I'll add to it yeah so for for me like the, the it it has been a process of 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 being more strategic because like here's the here's the deal what i want to do is respond to everybody about everything like if if someone dms me and uh, about just about anything um i like interacting with people i like answering questions if someone's just sending me like a funny video or meme or something I like those things. I want to look at it and respond and say, hey, this was funny. Send me more. Like, um, so I have had to cut back severely on a lot of that. Um, and it, th that was a tough decision for me because like one of I one of, I guess, like my formative experiences is like an early career fitness professional is like. When I was when when I was a young kid and I was like getting into this stuff, I would like read stuff, I'd watch stuff, I'd have so many questions, and I would I would reach out to people um who who had made the content with with questions about it that that I just sincerely wanted to know the answers to. And most of them just ignored me because like I assumed they were busy. And I mean, in hindsight, 
they probably weren't good questions. They were probably very dumb questions. Um, but the people who did respond to me, like I, I still remember that and it, it mattered a lot to me at the time. And so I told myself like, Hey, when I, when I do this, like if I take this route, uh, into the fitness industry, um, I, I want to make a point of responding to everyone. Cause like, I, I don't want people to feel like I'm ignoring them. Um, and like, yeah, like I, I appreciated when people responded to me, golden rule stuff, return the favor, etc. Um, and like, I did that from 2012 until like last year, basically. Uh, like if, if someone messaged me about anything or if someone like commented a, a decent comment on anything I wrote, um, I would always respond to it. And it just got to the point where like, I still enjoyed doing that, but it, it, it essentially made it impossible to do anything else. Um, like I, the, I was going to say, you reach a point where the time commitment to doing that becomes close to infinite right yeah. yeah um and so yeah like it it was starting to negatively detract from like the other work that that i could do um it, you know and it and it uh cut down on like the amount of content i could make it cut down on the time that i could devote to developing products and ultimately like i'm i i'm a sick fuck uh with like probably an excessive um, sense of felt duty. And so like, if I did have any sorts of commitments to like mass to things I needed to do for stronger by science, any of that stuff, essentially I would just like devote an entire workday to just like responding to people on different platforms. And then instead of like wrapping up work after like seven, eight hours, then it would be like, okay, now I finally responded to everyone. Now it's time to just start another workday. Um, and actually like, <laughs> do the productive stuff I need to do. And so it, it was like, it, it was like seriously having pretty negative effects on my health. Like it, it was leading to, uh, much less sleep, especially during grad school, um, less time to train. It was having like negative social implications, like way less time to spend with Lindsay than I wanted to. And like basically no time to spend with, with any other friends. Like it, it was, it it was it was bad for me um but i i felt like ah, i like i can't really step away cuz like i feel like this is the right thing to do and it took uh it, it took a lot of work on myself and just kind of like soul searching to realize like no like i can um cuz you know there there's a finite amount of time in the day and ultimately like if i'm trying to do if I'm trying to do like the most good possible and have like the largest beneficial effect for like the largest number of people, um, like ultimately I was, I was harming that by how I was choosing to allocate my time. Like, you, you know, if, if I could like write an article that's going to be read by 20,000 people versus use that same period of time to respond to like 150 individual questions over like dms to help one person out that no one will ever see um like ultimately that 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 not just was a, a bad use of time for like me personally and how it would impact the rest of my life like it, it meant that like the work that i could do that would like tangibly beneficially affect 
people was like more more generally was constrained. Um, so yeah, I I cut back a lot, and and the way that has looked is um, I I just don't respond to DMs like much at all anymore. That's especially true on Instagram. Um, like I maybe like once a month or two, I will scroll through my Instagram DMs and things that look like particularly important to respond to i will respond and say oh hey sorry it took two months to get back with you but uh if you ever want to contact me again don't do it here here's my email address um everything else like i just leave on red and i feel like a dick but like i kind of have to um and so yeah like i i uh keep an eye on the stronger by science and macro factor um facebook group and subreddit um, I'm trying to make a point of like posting more consistently on Instagram and Facebook, but ignoring, not ignoring, like reading, but not responding to the comments. Cause like, if I let myself go down that road, the wheels are going to fall off again. Um, but yeah, so it, it's just been a, a matter, I guess, of like trying to be strategic with it. And most of what that has entailed is just like not responding to nearly as many DMs anymore. Yeah. I mean, you know me, I... Or or comments on things that I post. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, I, I really thrive from the uh, high volume interpersonal communications and just the attention that I get on social media. So I'm I'm posting like crazy and I can't stop. Um, no, I mean, I'm, I'm very introverted. So, uh, and I, I don't have uh, a, a large group of people kind of constantly hitting me with DMs. So my... My social media experience, I think, is very different from yours. Um, one of the things that I've been more proactive about managing, though, with social media is um, just kind of really spending some time to figure out how it affects me. So, like, are there certain platforms where when I'm on it, my mood gets worse, <laughs> like pretty reliably? Or are there certain platforms where people try to lure me into pedantic arguments that I don't find enjoyable or fulfilling or even intellectually stimulating? You know, it's like it's different areas and different pockets and corners of different platforms. You start to get the vibe of like, oh, I don't think I like it here, <laughs> you know? And so I've just been more, uh, more proactive lately about uh, using social media rather than letting social media use me mm -hmm. and, and making sure that when I'm doing it, it's because I like it and it's beneficial and it makes, it makes me feel neutral to positive, you know? Uh, so part of that's been, um, just being more intentional about how much time is spent on social media. The other part is just kind of preferring different platforms over others but uh you know one of the ones that i really like is instagram mm -hmm. like i i do answer instagram dms pretty reliably i answer uh facebook messages kind of reliably but i never check that folder where the non-friend messages go mm -hmm. uh so who knows what's sitting in there i have <laughs> do you ever check that thing um i i peek at it like maybe once a quarter. Okay. Yeah. So I, I have no idea what's waiting in there for me, but Instagram, I, Insta Instagram, I generally have a good time on, you know, I'm, I'm looking at, uh, you know, cute videos of animals and it's all good. 
I feel like I'm able to curate a really positive experience there mm-hmm. and I don't get dragged into too many uh, pedantic arguments. But another thing that, that goes into that, though, is like, you know, you, you can uh, try to modify and adjust your social media habits. But another thing is just working on your own perspective and your own mind. Right. So if you're constantly getting in, getting lured into arguments you don't want to be in, you, you do play a role in that. You know, like you, the platform aside, you can say, oh, I, I need to be more mindful of when this is occurring and find better ways to simply opt out of these negative experiences that I make that sound like it's like a horrible experience, but just stuff that kills my vibes that I just simply don't enjoy. And frankly, are not, not good uses of my time. Like we have, we have enough things we could work on. We don't need to convince one person at a time to do shit they don't want to do yeah. <laughs> you know, that's that's usually how those those arguments go is someone says i i don't like eating the way that that you said would be good in this article and i'm like then then don't that's fine yeah uh but anyway yeah so i think that you and i are very different with social media but uh but yeah m- maybe those answers will resonate with some folks out there yeah my my appetite for it is boundless my enjoyment of it uh it almost always positive and and so for for me it's just a matter of like getting getting myself to do less and not it's it's still an ongoing battle to like not feel like a bad person when i look at a dm and don't respond to it like yeah. i i do this is this is probably like an insane belief i have but i i do i do still feel like it's like if if someone has a genuine question and i feel like i can help them out and I choose not to like that. That feels to me like a bad thing that I'm doing ethically and that I'm failing to meet my duties. Um, but yeah, like I, 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 every day I think I'm learning to uh, accept it and not not hold myself accountable for it too hard. <laughs> yeah, it, it is interesting though. Like you said, your your appetite for it is boundless. I, I feel like you're working on kind of suppressing that appetite or, you know, uh, you know, increasing the efficiency of how you kind of leverage that. And with me, I'm kind of trying to drum up more of an appetite for it, um, Mm -hmm. which is kind of a difficult uh, perspective to explain because it's not that I dislike interacting with people. It's just that my appetite for it, like the I'm on a low volume communication program, yeah. you know, where like I really enjoy connecting with people a little bit. Yeah. But, but when I'm like on social media and there's just this wave of communications to me, that can be like kind of almost like a little bit overwhelming just being like pretty, pretty introverted and not a very vocal, like I'm not a very emotive person. I don't speak a lot. Uh, dude, I, I think I've told you when I, when I moved out of my old apartment uh, or before I did, I mean, the walls were like paper thin. Like I, I can, yeah, my, my neighbor, I know all of her hobbies, all of her favorite songs. Like it was, the walls were just like, all the sound came through. Mm-hmm. And one day she asked me, she's like, what do you do for a living? Cause I noticed that you are literally never home. And I said, I don't leave. <laughs> like she thought that my apartment was vacant. Yeah. And I was like, dude, I'm here 24 hours a day. Um, but yeah, I just kind of like my natural default mode is to sit in silence with no sound and no communications whatsoever. And for whatever reason, I'm cool as a cucumber doing that for a length of time that I think a lot of people, it would actually push them to the brink of insanity. <laughs> like it, it, yeah, but, but yeah, we're, we're very different in that way, but it, it's a weird thing. Cause I, when, when people reach out to me on social media, I also 
really value it. And I take that pretty seriously of like, I, I really appreciate that people uh, like what we do and, and would bother to reach out to me. Like I, I don't dismiss that or, you know, um, I, I, I don't uh, lose sight of how uh, supportive that is. I don't lose appreciation for that. But yeah, I just have a really limited ability to communicate at really high volume. So I'm trying to I'm trying to get a little bit more active on social media as you're kind of uh, trying to rein it in a little bit. There's plenty of slack to pick up. <laughs> if, if you ever just want to log into my Instagram and uh, respond to some DMs just for practice, you know, to, to build yeah. up that tolerance, feel free, <laughs> feel free. Th- yeah, there, there are plenty for you. I, I will think about that. Uh and then I'll say no. Uh, all right. So do you have anything else you want to add in this? Oh, should we do the, the fun one at the end? The uh, uh, physical strength one? Sure. Yeah. Um, you, you were going to say something else, it sounds like? No. Okay. So to wrap things up here, we've got a question from Hank. Uh, and I think I have the correct answer. So Hank asks, uh, is bench press the best gauge of raw physical strength? That's in all caps. I don't know if I did that or if Hank did that. Uh, and then, then the follow-up question is, if not, then what is the best gauge of raw physical strength? For me, I would say the Husafel stone carry is the ultimate gauge of raw physical strength because you are simply picking up a giant thing that is uh, inconveniently shaped, holding it to your chest, and scampering as far as you can for as long as you can. Like, to me, that is a thing a very strong person can do well uh, and probably has the highest level of carryover to, like, if you just needed to do some shit in the world. I feel like the Husafel stone carry is as practical as it gets. Uh, yeah, I, I, my, my thoughts were along a very similar line. Um, like... I would say like odd stone lifting just generally because uh, with with a Husafel, it's still like sitting on on the bottom and like you kind of hug it and like zercher it up. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like a, a big gnarly irregularly shaped rock that you can't you can't lift in a, a nice controlled way as you would an Atlas stone. Um, but it, yeah, just just s- something where where you can't technique it, you know, like yeah. you, you can't. Um, it's not like a barbell. You, you can't, you can't master the technique of just like picking up very heavy, irregularly shaped objects. Uh, and so I think if you're, if you're very good at that, uh, you're probably a very strong person. Absolutely. And that is, uh, not where I excel. So I can answer that question without bias. I am the, the few times I've tried to mess around with strongman type implements, I've been absolutely useless yeah uh, i think i could get better uh working through some some technical instruction because I, I feel like um every new strongman movement and implement is kind of its own little game where you have to understand the strategy uh but yeah strongman is not my not my strong suit yeah uh by any stretch uh all right so i think that does it for this episode of the stronger by science podcast as always Thank you so much for listening, and we will be back soon with another. Thank you for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to sign up for our free newsletter to get concise breakdowns of relevant research, as well as 28 free training programs for all skill levels and all schedules. We hate spam just as much as you do, so we'll only email you when we have something really interesting to share with you. 
You can sign up for the free newsletter at strongerbyscience.com newsletter, or just go to the Stronger by Science homepage and click the free programs button at the top. If you want to join in on the Stronger by Science podcast conversation, be sure to check out our Facebook group and our subreddit. The links for both are provided in the description of today's episode. Finally, please remember that we are not medical doctors or registered dietitians. So before you make any changes to your exercise or nutrition habits, be sure to check with a qualified healthcare professional. Once again, thank you for listening, and we will be back soon with another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast.